Father, thank you for your word. And tonight, like every night, we have asked you to open our minds to understand the scriptures. We can't do it without your Holy Spirit. So we ask your Holy Spirit to reveal truth so we might know truth. And truth has a name, Jesus. So Father, tonight we seek him. And we ask that you would reveal him by the Holy Spirit through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we ended up with Paul's warning. <clears throat> Pretty heavy. We ended last week. It's a heavy topic. Paul says he had a fear. The fear was that he would preach to many and yet somehow be disqualified himself. So tonight um, we begin in the context of his warning. The context that if you think you can't fall, be careful. If you think you're beyond the ability for Satan to reach you, be careful. Tonight we continue with chapter 10 and the focus turns to idolatry. Remember the context. I'll say it a third time. The context is be careful if you think you're unable to fall. You're beyond the reach of Satan. Okay, chapter 10, verse 14. So my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. Anybody remember when he told you to run from something else just a couple weeks ago? Run from sexual immorality. Now he says, flee from the worship of idols. Now somebody tells you to run, what should you do? <laughs> you might all run. He says, flee, run from the worship of idols. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I'm saying is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, what's he talking about? Communion. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we, church people, are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are all one body. Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? Now, Paul is going to, or just did, use communion to illustrate how we are spiritually connecting ourselves to someone. Listen carefully. He's going to use communion to paint the picture. All of us are spiritually connecting ourselves to someone and there's only two spirits on the earth. It's a spiritual truth that you need to come to grips. There's only two spirits, only two options. And all of us are spiritually connecting ourselves to someone. I like to use the, the analogy of the uh, extension cord. We're plugging ourselves into a source of power. So some people think, well, if I don't plug into Jesus, I'll let the cord just hang there and I'm not plugged into anybody. I can be neutral. No, that's what Satan wants you to do. Because to not plug into Jesus is to automatically, by default, being plugged into the other spirit, the spirit of Satan. There is no neutral. Sharing the blood and sharing the body. We do it in communion every week here at Nineveh. Sharing the blood, sharing the body of Christ is to worship Him by sharing our lives with Him, connecting ourselves with Him. Do you recognize when we take communion, that's what we're doing? Spiritually speaking, we're sharing one body, Jesus. We all partake of one body. Though we are many, all of us many partake of one. And we all become together in the blood, together in the body. But what is the alternative? Is there an alternative? If we don't share in the blood and we don't share in the body and we don't plug into Jesus, is there an alternative? Can anyone be neutral? And in, the, in that question, I ask a question. What is idolatry? He just told you to run from it. You might ought to know what it is that you need to run from. God's first two commandments of the Ten Commandments specifically deal with idolatry. And I ask you, if you're not connected to Christ, then who are you connected to? 
Let me give you a, a picture to think about tonight. If you're not connected to Jesus, no one's neutral. Even if you think you're neutral, you're not neutral. If you're not connected to Jesus and you're not neutral, who are you connected to? I want you to consider this word, idolatry. If you're not connected to Jesus, plugged into Christ, abiding with Him, He's abiding with you. Together, me and Him, Him and me, we are in the Father. If that's not you, idolatry. Let me show you. Verse 19. What am I trying to say, Paul said? Am I saying that food sacrificed to idols has some significance? Or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons. They're not gods. But are they nothing? These sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. So if let's say you're not participating in a covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Christ. What do you think we do when we do the Lord's Supper? We are remembering his death. We're participating in the new covenant. Here's the he holds that cup up and says, This is a covenant of my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you're not into that, what are you into? If you're not into that, what are you doing? What is, your, what is the spiritual nature of your life? Well, I don't have one. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. And I don't want you to participate with demons. If you're not participating with Jesus, you are by default participating with demons. And you know how many people are going to, in their mind, they're going to say, well, I don't believe that. There's a neutral. You know, I don't worship Satan. I don't worship demons. But I don't really believe in all this Jesus stuff. I'm kind of in the middle. There is no middle. That's, then, then Satan's already, he's already got you. He's convinced you there's a middle. And therein lies the deception. Verse 21. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. Well, can't I have a third cup? Where's the third cup? You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. Where's the other table? Verse 22, what? Do we dare to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we're stronger than he is? Demons, let's clarify something because he's brought it up. Demons are not gods. They are angels that have fallen and are following the rebellion of the chief angel named Satan. And by the way, he's an angel. He's not a god. So they're angels following after angels. What's the problem with that? Why is that a bad idea? I mean, angels are pretty incredible. Why not follow one? They are created beings. They cannot give life. They cannot sustain life. They are not creators. They cannot give you the breath of life. They got the breath of life from God. They can't give it to you. Why do you follow someone who cannot give life? When there is someone who can. You can't have both. The cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. No one's neutral. I say it again. Notice that Paul links God's anger to jealousy. Did you see it? He links it to jealousy. Go back up to verse 22. What? Do we dare rouse the Lord's jealousy? What would rouse the Lord's jealousy? And then I'm going to get into the point. What is, do you dare rouse the Lord's jealousy? What would do that? Dining with demons. Why? Because he wants you. He wants you. He wants you. And if you're dining with demons, then Satan has you. And he wants you. He's a jealous God. Now, I don't know why, but when I was going back over this this afternoon, immediately my mind was taken back to, we were in that original building, I don't know, 15 years ago maybe, having a Bible study, and I remember showing a video, probably wasn't 15 years, a little bit less than 15 years ago, I was showing a video of Oprah Winfrey being interviewed. And she was following some kind of a new age guru of some sort. I, I don't remember all the details, and I'm happy that I don't. But one thing I do remember is this. 
she made a statement, and I played it to the church in that setting years ago, in which she said she really was all into this God-Jesus thing until she found out that he was jealous. And for that, that made him small. So she decided, because the God who is jealous is now small in her eyes, she was going to follow after this New Age Eastern guru. I guess he's big. Does the idea that God is jealous make him look small to you? Because that just had absolutely the opposite effect upon me. To me, it meant, I love you. I love you. I don't want to lose you. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to be in darkness forever where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because I love you. Do we dare rouse the Lord's jealousy? That's what Paul says. It's a question. Do you think you're stronger than he is? Here's the first two of the Ten Commandments. And I, you've heard me say it. Do you think it's number one and number two by coincidence? Or by design? Here we go. Go back to Exodus chapter 20. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. Why? Why must you not? For I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I won't put up with it. That's what he's saying. I'm not going to put up with it. I'm not going to share you. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love of, to a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Do you really think you're stronger than God? And what about freedom? You see, this whole idea of the church movement in the Apostle Paul's time was, you know what, there were 613 rules that the Jews tried to obey and they messed up most of them. So here comes Jesus and he, he, he brings freedom, right? That we're saved by grace through faith. Not by the law, because we couldn't, the law just showed us that we couldn't do it. So what about this freedom that Paul preaches? Next verse. You say, I am allowed to do anything. There's the freedom, okay? And by the way, some way, spiritually speaking, that's true. Why? Why? Paul just mentioned it. Don't miss the context. If you, if, you, if you eat meat sacrificed to an idol that's not really a God at all, and your conscience is clear because you know it's not really a God at all, then you're free. You're not bound by some religious ritual. You're free. Your conscience is clear before God. And then he says, in that context, you say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything's good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Uh-oh. You mean now when I consider what I'm free to do, I need to consider what I'm free to do regarding how it affects you? Yeah. Say that three times real fast. What I'm free to do now has more to do than just me. What I'm free to do because of my conscience and my relationship with Christ with the freedom I have received in Christ now has a side issue. How will it affect those in the body that I have connected myself through Christ? I have a responsibility to you. And, just in case you're feeling real good about that, you have a responsibility to me. And we have a responsibility to Christ. We're connected. Verse 24 again. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So, you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. There's the freedom, but be careful with your freedom. You're in the body. You're not independent. Self-centered, here's a proclamation, self-centered thinking will kill you. 
Spiritually speaking, self-centered thinking will kill you. It's all God's. All of it. Everything on earth is His. In fact, let me, let me make a statement that seems obvious to me, but in our heart we struggle. Here it is. We have nothing that has not been given to us by Him, except by Him. So whatever you think you have, where'd you get it? Well, I work by the sweat of my brow. Where'd you get the sweat and where'd you get the brow? Where'd you get it? Huh? I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. 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 I pulled myself up. That's what they used to say. Where'd you get the boots? Where'd you get the straps? Where'd you get the arms to pull yourself up with? Where'd you get it? And when you get that fundamental truth, what? We have nothing except that which has been given to us. When you get it, truly in your mind, get it. Worshiping Him is no longer an issue. Years ago, I know you've heard me say this multiple times. I don't know why it affected me the way it did. Years ago when we did that I Am study, the thing that just blew me away over and over and over and over is this, is this. Jesus says... Before Abraham was born, I am. You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say that you know Abraham? And Jesus' answer is, before, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And they reached down and picked up stones to stone him. Because Abraham predates Jesus by 2,000 years. But here's the point. When you know that he is, I am, Worshiping him, you'll never have trouble with that again. Never. Because once you know who he is. So if you're in the room tonight and you're struggling with bending your knee to this Jesus, you're struggling with the idea of following him, you still haven't figured out the fundamental of who he is. He's I am. He's that. So how do I worship God in the body? in the church okay now we're going to get into some details verse 27 if someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner okay a pagan ask you home for dinner accept the invitation if you want to if you don't want to don't eat whatever is offered to you without raising a question of conscience in other words don't you bring it up why because you got a clear conscience Right? You got a clear conscience. Verse 29. But suppose someone, that pagan who invited you to dinner, tells you at dinner, this meat was offered to an idol. Here you are, just got the steak knife out and you just popped it in there. They offered that to Molech today. Oh, no. And that was a ribeye. Suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it. Well, just a minute ago, you told me I could eat it. I should have ate it quicker before you told me. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. Now, the other person's a pagan. So, well, how am I going to get that pagan to be unpagan? By the word, the word. By the way, the word pagan just means without God. For why should my freedom be limited by what somebody else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? Now, he's asking a question to make you think about this. Remember, we no longer live to ourselves. We live for God and we live in the body of Christ. So if you thought you wanted to be independent, you, you should have never got in the church. You should have never came to Jesus. Go, let's go to the next verse, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, now listen, I've heard a lot of people misquote this scripture. They use this scripture to motivate people to do all kinds of things. And you know what? I'm okay with that as long as you don't miss the point. What's the point? He's talking about whether you should eat that or whether you should not eat that. 
And he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Well, what would be the alternative of doing it for the glory of God? Doing it for the glory of me. I like ribeyes. That's the context. That's the context. That's the point. Whether you eat or drink, don't do it for the glory of you. Don't do it because you have the freedom of conscience to do it, knowing that that guy is never going to see Christ by you going along. He's only going to see Christ by you being different. He will never see Christ by you becoming like the world. So, now read it differently. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it for God, not for you. Well, I have a clear conscience. Pass me the steak plate. Do it for the glory of God. What would God do? He'd show that man Jesus. Yeah, he would. Verse 32. You doubt what I just said? Listen to 32. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. Now, how would I give them offense? Don't give them a reason to look at the church and say, you all are two-faced. Y'all say one thing, but you live another lie. Don't give offense. Don't give them a reason to look at us and find that we're insincere in what we say we believe. Don't give offense to the Jew, the Gentile, or the church. And, And here he goes. I try... I, too, try to please everyone and everything. I do. I, just, I don't just do what is best for me. This is Paul. I don't just do what's best for me. I do what is best for others so that many might be saved. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Is that confusing? That's not confusing. It's not confusing at all. Pleasing everyone does not mean compromise of the word of truth, but it means I am not self-centered. It's not about me. Don't offend people for no reason. Don't offend people just because you want to offend somebody. He said, don't, don't give offense to the Jews, Gentiles. What? Allow them to see the freedom. Let them see the freedom we have in Christ. Don't don't apologize for the freedom we have in Christ, but don't use that freedom to be self-centered because when they see you self-centered, they'll never see Jesus because Jesus is the opposite of self-centered. Now, let's make this point very clear about pleasing others before we move on because this is a foundational issue in the body of Christ. So I'm jumping over to Galatians chapter 1. Paul uses about as serious a language as you can use. <clears throat> he says, let, God, let God's curse fall on anyone. That's pretty heavy. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say it again, what we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if somebody varies from the principles of the gospel of Christ, may a curse from God come upon them. He's calling down a curse upon people who teach apostasy. Obviously, here's his point, verse 10. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So we just said, don't give offense to the Jew or the Gentile or the church. But I'm going to tell you one better than that. Don't give offense to God. I heard uh, Franklin Graham say something recently. He says, it seems like in the modern American culture, Everybody is afraid to fend, af- afraid of offending everyone except God. And the very one you ought to be the most afraid of offending would be God. It's interesting to me that Paul says, if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servants. And I say, amen, me too. If pleasing people were my goal, if, if in my current role, my motive is to please people. I couldn't do this. Let me give you an example. I wrote some down just thinking. 
You'd be amazed at the emails I get. You'd be amazed at some of the comments I get from week to week to week. Um, somebody told me recently, if you sh preach shorter sermons, attendance would go up. <laughs> I didn't think it was near as funny as y'all did. <laughs> and then somebody said, and you've heard me say this, they said, if you would talk less about Jesus coming, it would be a more receptive atmosphere. Here's the third one. If you'd be more positive, more uplifting, more encouraging, it would be better for the church. And they weren't joking when they said that. They were being serious. Do you think I couldn't preach Joel Osteen's sermon? Do you think I couldn't do that? Do you think, do you think that's not easier than what I do? You know, that's the easiest sermons in the world. Just find you some feel-good cold chill illustration and read it. I, I went to a retreat years ago and the guy, the preacher's name was Wally Rendell. He used to be in Lexington. Now I think he preaches in Nicholasville. Uh, a man I have a great deal of respect for. He said something I never forgot. He said this, may I preach as a dying man to dying men. Paul lived that life. May I preach as a dying man to dying men, knowing that I don't have much time left, and you don't either. So let me put that in context. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So those three things that I have people comment to me about, tongue-in-cheek, some, some not so tongue-in-cheek, shorter sermons, less Jesus coming, let's be more encouraging, feel-goodish. If Jesus was coming in three weeks from now, would you want me to do those three? The answer would be no. If Jesus was coming in three weeks, would you say, that sermon was too long? Am I boring you? I mean, really, I say, am I boring you? Does the Word of God bore you? Does my presentation of the Word of God bore you? If we thought he was coming in three weeks, would you want that diluted, minimized, let's stop that. Or would you see, the point is, he announced in advance that his return would be marked that the love of most would grow cold. And there would be a great apostasy, a great falling away from the word. And here the Apostle Paul says, if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Why? Because they come in conflict with each other. Paul chose chapter 10. By saying, he closes, excuse me, chapter 10. Actually, it's the first verse of chapter 11 by saying, do what I'm doing. Imitate Christ. Now Paul opens up the topic of public worship in the church. Chapter 11, verse 2. I am so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. But there is one thing I want you to know. One thing. What is this one thing he wants to illustrate? The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. But since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear, she should wear a covering. Here's the way I want to summarize those verses. There is a created order. Listen carefully to the wording. There is a created order. Whether you like it or not is totally irrelevant. There is a created order. Christ, man, woman. The head of woman is man. The head of man is Christ. And the head of Christ is God. There is a created order, and to rebel against this created order is to rebel against God himself. Good luck with that. The head of man is Christ. 
Now, I know that there will be people that don't like that sentence. The head of man is Christ. Some people will say, I don't accept that. Okay? Don't. That's on you. Don't do it. But you know what? I didn't write it. I believe it to be God's created order. The head of man is Christ. So Paul then connects the head of man to a covering. What do you wear on your head? A covering, a hat. I wore a hat today. Don't cover your head when you pray or prophesy. Why? Because the head of man is Christ. What radiates from man is Christ. Okay? Stay with me. And then he says, and because the woman's head is man, then she should keep her head covered if she prays or prophesies. Are you confused yet? Maybe this will help. I'll add one even more complicated. When I went to Israel in 2010, I was totally ignorant of the Jewish customs. I went to the Western Wall, to the Wailing Wall, and I thought I could just walk up to the Western Wall and begin to pray. That was the highlight of my trip, what I wanted to do more than anything. And I walked right inside there, and some guy grabs me by the shoulder. You can't come in here. Your head is uncovered. Now, I'm a student of the New Testament. And in the New Testament, what did it say? I'm not supposed to have my head covered because my head is Christ. But what if I went amongst a group of people that did not accept Christ as the Messiah? Then it's different. So you know what they made me do? I put on a yarmulke. I put on a little thingy. I didn't have any problem putting on the thingy except I wondered how many other people had put on that thingy before they gave it to me. <laughs> That's the only issue I had. Where's that thingy been? So I put on that thing, and I went over there, and, and I, you know, I respected their culture. God wasn't concerned about whether I had that thing on my head or not. He knows that my head is Christ. It's not about whether I had that hat on when I walked up to that wall and cried out to God. It's about whether or not between me and God the Father was the head. His name's Jesus. The head of man is Christ. Stay with me. Paul goes on to explain. Now, if you're a woman in the room and you've already got hurt feelings, about three weeks now you'll get better. Just stay well. Stay, stay, stay okay. You're not, if you're mad at me, you're mad at the wrong person. And, and I'm going to say this. I say this and every time I do marriage, pre-marriage counseling and quite frankly, marriage counseling. God's way works. It works every time. His way works. And to fight against God's way is going to ensure that you're going to lose. So why fight it? And, and, and here's the deal. If pleasing people were my motive, I could not be a servant of Christ. And I'm not going to stand in front of the culture on the last day and give an account about why or why not I didn't go along. I am going to stand in front of God. And you are too. And you're going to give an account by what you went along with and what you didn't. Verse 7, A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory. And woman reflects man's glory. For the first man didn't come from woman. Did you know that? Adam was not born of a woman. But the first woman, Eve, came from man. And man was not made for woman. Woman was made for man. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show that she is under authority. Now, 
I want to do something, and you've noticed I've done that quite a bit lately. I want to show you another English translation because I understand that the NLT is a little looser in its translation, so let's take a very literal word-by-word translation, NASB. For a man ought not to shave, not to have his head covered, excuse me, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman, you could insert, originates from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Did you know angels are watching? Maybe a bigger question is, do you know God's watching? When we gather together, do you know he's watching? Do you know he's watching right now? He knows what's in my heart right this second. He knows what's in your heart right this second. He's watching. The angels are watching. Man is the head of woman, but here, listen, listen, in case some of you guys are getting puffed up thinking you've got a line you're going to give your wife when you get home, you're an idiot, Okay. <laughs> But we are not independent of each other. Why? Because it doesn't stop in that verse. Listen to the next one. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men. And here it comes. And men are not independent of women. For although the first woman, Eve, came from man... Every other man, and that'd be all of us in his room tonight, and every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. In other words, we need each other. Remember, we are not self-centered. We are in the body. But there is a created order. Don't apologize, church. Do not apologize. I'm not going to apologize for the created order so that it might not offend you. Sorry, I'm not doing it. There is a created order, and to rebel against this created order is not to rebel against the church. It is to rebel against God himself. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, okay, do, do you? Somebody think, yeah, I'd like to, but I ain't doing it in here. <laughs> That's why I ask in here, because I know you wouldn't do it in here. If anybody wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom other than this, and neither do God's other churches. I don't want to argue about this. Is some of this cultural to the times? Listen carefully. Listen carefully. Is some of this head covering, not head covering? Is some of this cultural to the times? Probably yes. Is some of this non-cultural, an absolute created order for the church? Yes, I believe so. Is this about hats or no hats? Long hair or short hair? What about beards? If that's what's going on circling in your head right now, hats, no hats, long hair, short hair, you're still not getting it. This is not about legalistic rules or laws. This is about the Word of God and the creator, created order of God that is clearly outlined in God's Word. We can't accept, and I'm going to prove it to you, we cannot accept the Apostle Paul's teaching that salvation is only by grace through faith, not by works, and then turn around in the next sentence and reject Paul's teaching on the role of men and women in the church. Did you hear me? If you're in the room tonight and you look at, I'm going to give you case A, case B. Look at right below there, Ephesians 2.8. You read Ephesians 2.8 and say, preach it, preacher. What? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. 
It's a gift from God, not by works that anyone can boast. Preach it, preacher. And then I'll just turn a few pages over to 1 Timothy 2.11, and I read this. By the way, this is not what I read. This is connected to what I read. This is from Timothy, not Corinthians. <clears throat> Paul says, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly, for God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Now how is it, how is it, how is it possible that you accept Ephesians 2.8 and you might reject 1 Timothy 2.11? It's the same book. It's the same author. Is it true? It was Eve that was deceived. Listen carefully, ladies. It was Eve that was deceived. But because Eve came from Adam, Adam bore the guilt and the responsibility. Why? God's created order. Be careful what you ask for. I'm going to say it again. It was Eve that was deceived. But because of the created order of God, Eve did not exist to herself. She came from Adam. And because Eve was deceived and she came from Adam, who bore the guilt? Adam. Not Eve. Adam. Read the New Testament. The guilt was placed upon Adam. Adam's sin. It's called Adam's sin. Now, praise God, hallelujah. We're moving to chapter 12. And the Holy Spirit gifts. Verse 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the spiritual abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. You know... That when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in the worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking about the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, now I want to I make a point here. This is good to know in case you run into somebody you question, okay? I want you to know no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. If you run into somebody and they are cursing Jesus His name, it is impossible for the Spirit of Christ to curse Christ. Be careful who they are. Number two, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, I'll tell you a story. I had this guy that... Uh, Several years ago, this guy that people thought he was maybe demonic. So they give me a call and say, would you go talk to him? What do you mean, go talk to him? You go talk to him. So they said, we think that possibly he is a demon because he does things that are weird. So I thought, why not? So I go and I talk to this guy. Only mistake I did is I did it privately. I should have took somebody with me. That's a good counsel to you. Anyway, I went and talked to this guy. And I felt safe in doing that. And um, I let him talk for a while. And then I, I, I did this. I said, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God? Say it out loud in your mouth. Because see, I don't believe that if he has demons inside of him, he will be able to look at me and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And at first he stuttered around, and I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> but I don't think he understood what I was wanting him to do. And then finally he said, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's just a guy who had some personal issues. Jesus Christ is Lord. Say it out loud. Paul says that you won't be able to do that now, I'm not saying that somebody can't be a deceiver. Okay, I don't know. But legitimately, you can't do it unless the Holy Spirit allows you to. 
The word Lord means master. There will be something inside of you that will try to keep you from saying that unless it's true. And that something is the other spirit, the unholy spirit. If it is the Holy Spirit that enables me to say Jesus Christ is Lord, it is the unholy spirit that tries to stop me from saying it. There's a good test. These same, these same people in Corinth worshipped pagan idols at one time, but the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to see clearly. If any of us have confessed Jesus as Lord, it was through the Spirit. And there's only one Spirit, but there are many different gifts that come from one Spirit. Now, I'm going to read it. I want, as I read it, I want you to notice something. There is one single source of spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit, not the unholy, the Holy Spirit offers gifts. Even though these people used to participate in the unholy, now they participate in the holy. But when they plugged themselves into the holy, guess what happened? Spiritual gifts flowed through them. That's the church. Here we go, verse 4. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. This is the created order of the church. One head, which is Christ, but many different functions inside the body of Christ. Each part of the body is uniquely connected to the other parts of the body. And any part of the body, listen carefully, any part of the body that does not submit and connect to the body under the head is like a cancer that operates outside the normal functions of the body. Let me illustrate that. Do you know what can you know one of the worst things you could ever go to the doctor and he looks at you and say you have cancer? You know what cancer is? Cancer is a cell inside of our body that operates independently. It won't operate in concert with any of the other functions of the body. It operates totally independent of every other function of the body. Your body is connected together by this God design. But a cancer cell operates by itself. It stands alone and operates independently. And left untreated, it will grow and grow and grow until it reaches over and dis distorts or takes over the functions of the body. We are all in the body of Christ. And if you think you can function independently in the body of Christ, you are like a cancer. A little bit of leaven can affect the whole batch of dough. What's that illustration? That's the picture of what we would know as a cancer. It just takes a little bit to affect a whole lot of people, a whole lot of function. A little bit. So, with that said, verse 7. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives the message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another and to someone else, the, the one Spirit, the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. Still, another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages or tongues, while another person is given the ability to interpret tongues, what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. So if you think that you get to pick the gift, you look at here like you're getting at the menu, like you're going to a restaurant and said, I'll take that one and that one and give me a side of that one. You think you want to pick the gifts? It doesn't work. The Holy Spirit picks the gifts. He assigns the gifts. We don't pick the gifts. Now, you, you're going to find out in a minute, there are certain gifts you might request or you might desire, but ultimately, you take what he gives you. The gifts are given so we can help each other. Look at verse 7. Why are the gifts? 
so you can be fabulous by yourself as a cancer cell in the body? No. The gift is given so that you will have a place in the body. That's the gift. The gift is that you've got a place in the body. Wise advice, special knowledge, great faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, unknown languages, interpreting unknown language. All this is from one spirit, and people don't get to choose. God assigns. Paul then compares that to the body of Christ, to the human body. He connects it to the human body. Verse 12, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into what? Into one body by one spirit. We all share the same spirit. All baptized into one body, one spirit. We have something in common. What's the thing we have in common? The spirit of Christ. Verse 14. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, in fact, if the foot was talking, I'd be frightened already. But if the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I am not a hand. That does not make it any less part of the body. If the ears say, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? Aren't you glad we're not all mouths? I am. Verse 18, but our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. So I'm going to push Paul's button for a moment. Where are you at? Read that verse and put yourself in the sentence. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. You think you're in the Nineveh Christian church by accident? You think you are at this place at this time by random happenstance? And now I'll make it personal. Now that you are part of the body of Christ, what's your role? What's your function? What are you doing? Well, I'm a liver. I just sit here. Quiver every now and then. What's your function? What's your function? Do you have one? Verse 19, how strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. Isn't that glorious? How smart is this? I look at this and I think, this is profound. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. There is no person in this church who can look at another person in this church and say, I don't need you. In fact, you disqualify yourself as a cancer cell by saying it. Because you do need them. And they need you. And we need Christ. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. We need each other. And if you lose sight of that, you'll find yourself working against the created order of God for his church. I acknowledge just personally my gift and calling of God to be one that is very visible, very prominent in the church, which means I'm the guy that people see. I'm the guy that stands up front. I'm the guy that people hear. I can tell you I did not choose that role. If you know me, you know I would have never chosen that role, never. But I also know that this role is no more important or no less important than any person sitting in this room right now. Verse 22. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. The ones you never see, the ones you never hear, are the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen. 
while the most honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to the parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the believers. So that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. This harmony is based on love, and there's no room for jealousy. Listen, if you think that somebody got a gift that you should have got, and you're upset that they got what you should have got, and you thought that you're not getting enough attention in the body, there's no room for jealousy. God chooses, God calls, God elects. And there's also no room for gossip inside the body of Christ. One thing drives me nuts, and if you know me personally, you know I deal with it pretty quickly, and I don't hold back. If I find some person in the church talking about another person in the church, I will stop you. I will tell you to your face, stop it. We don't talk about our family. We don't talk about each other. Unless you want to say something good. You want to say he's a great preacher, you go right ahead. <laughs> but if you start talking negatively about somebody in your family, guess what? Here's the thing. Do you understand what you're doing? Do you know the risk you take by taking that position? You're talking about God's child. You think he's not listening? You think he's not listening to what you're saying about one of his kids? What happens if somebody talks about one of your kids? Oh, that's okay. No, it's not okay. It's never okay. To speak against part of the body is to speak against the head. And the head is Christ. To speak against a part of the body is to speak against the bride. The bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. Do you really think Jesus is going to like you talking about his bride? Really? You think that's going to be a neutral position for you? Verse 27. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. First are apostles, second are prophets, third are teachers, then those who do miracles, then those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who can have the gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown, unknown languages? No, 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 no. No, we don't. All of us don't have all of it. This list is some. It's not all. You'll find in other scriptures there are more gifts given. Have you found your place, your role in the body? God assigns. But Paul does say this about which gift should be most desired. So if you look at the menu here and say, I'd like that one, that one, that one, he's giving you a hint on which is the best, which is the special. Here it comes, verse 31. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Now if you know anything about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's going to be next Wednesday night unless Jesus comes. And most people never read 1 Corinthians 13 after reading verse 31 of chapter 12. What? But now let me show you the way of life that is best. You want, you want the best gift? He's going to reveal it in chapter 13. It's called the love chapter. The most helpful gifts will have nothing to do. Are you ready? The most helpful gifts will have nothing to do with you. Is that incredible? Only God could do that. The most helpful, fulfilling, satisfying, useful, functional, fruit-bearing, God-giving gifts have nothing to do with you or me. And everything to do with 
somebody other than us. That's how God works. That's the created order. Father, tonight we thank you for your word. We acknowledge your word is truth. We pray, Lord, that we would accept it as truth as it is given in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here tonight.